Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast is brought to you by Astro Panda Productions. For more information or to find other great shows, visit AstroPandaProductions.com or visit the Astro Panda Productions page on BlogTalkRadio.com. Welcome back, everybody, to Geekish Cast Season 5, Episode 3. I am your host, Jeremy the Professor Vilmer, and joining us today is Jason Lennox. What's happening, Jason? I'm just here freezing in snowy Pennsylvania, Jeremy. Uh, you know, that's one of the things I can always say. I am lucky to have lived in this part of California. I have never once had to drive in the snow in my life. Mm, you're yeah. a blessed man. I've shoveled our driveway since yesterday four times. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot, yeah. Yeah, yep. I only I only yep. I only have days that bad when my when my dogs gets diarrhea. So you know, nice. Yeah, yeah. So Jason, you are working on a comic these days called Lords of the Cosmos. I am. Yep. And uh, we had issue two come out last year, and I'm furiously scribbling away on issue three as we speak. I've been working on it this afternoon. And I put right. the pencils down. I put the pencils down just to call in and talk. So no, that's it's exciting. That's we appreciate that. We actually like that quite a bit. So. I, this will be a meandering way to get to it, but a year or two back, I did buy the uh, collection of the Masters of the Universe microcomics. It comes in a hardbound mm-hmm. edition. I was a big fan of the early Masters of the Universe uh, mini comics, the ones that were a little more like a heavy metal magazine than they were a filmation cartoon. Right, yeah, and I remember uh, buying those as a kid and uh, getting those little comic books, and God knows where they are now. They're probably in a landfill somewhere, unfortunately, but... Those mini comics were definitely a different flavor uh, than the filmation cartoon. Uh, you, you hit the nail on the head. I, the one I remember the most was the one with Trapjaw, where Trapjaw connected the two swords and became very powerful. It had like an umbilical cord to Castle Grayskull, and uh, or he had an umbilical cord to Castle Grayskull, and then Skeletor and He-Man had to like hold hands with their swords together to make a super powerful sword and like cut his umbilical cord because he was that powerful. And it was very uh, like you said, heavy metal. Warhammer 40k. Uh, it was definitely a different tone for sure. Yes, and uh, I notice your comics uh, seem a little bit like that to me. Yeah, no, I uh, I'll, I'll kind of give you the the rundown of where Lords of the Cosmos came from. So DC had gotten the license to Masters of the Universe at some point. I don't know around six or seven years ago. I don't know if they still have it, but. I had picked up uh, an issue off the shelf at a store uh, in South Central PA that's since gone out of business, and I got it, and, and I came home, and I 
I gave it a, a read and, and uh, I just thought it was, was drag. I really didn't like it. I thought the, the story was just odd and, and the art was, I didn't care for it. And, uh, I was just kind of generally dissatisfied with what I saw. And, and I think masters of the universe is a super cool property. Um, the mini comics you mentioned, uh, I was a big fan of the, the Mike young productions, 2002, 2003 cartoon. And I kind of put it in my head that it'd be neat to, you know, do masters of the universe um obviously it's a huge commercial ip uh just to say well geez i'd like to work on that isn't going to happen so i kind of bookmarked it in the back of my head and around 2013 2014 uh, i'd ran into a guy uh, at work uh, that was a pretty geeky guy his name is jason palmatier uh love robotech loved old cartoons uh like a lot of the same things i did and I reached out to him around that time, 2013, 2014, then and said, hey, uh, I have this kind of idea that what if we did a a genre like He-Man and, and made a, a kind of a science fiction barbarian's comic book? And he said, I think that's really cool. And he said, I have a friend that, that does uh, writing in California for, for TVs and movies, and he's pretty geeky too. And he said, would you care if we got him involved? And I said, that sounds great because that'd be a good creative team to get it going. So we, we kind of chatted a lot on the phone and we, we were, we literally just said, okay, what is Masters of the Universe? And we just said, okay, we'll let's call it Lords of the Cosmos. Basically just kind of a, a general riff on the name, like take the, 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 the thesaurus and change the words. Mm-hmm. And then, and then we just started saying, okay, so if you have this genre, this kind of eighties cartoon, science fiction barbarian, you know, we looked at like Thunder or the Barbarian, the old Flash Gordon filmation cartoons, and said this is a genre. Who are the who are the archetypes? So we just started designing uh, a, a, a pantheon of critters and, and characters. Say so this is kind of a, a generic version of good guys and a generic version of bad guys. And we we started kind of building an open world uh, sandbox. And uh, we didn't really have much of a story, but we kind of knew where we wanted it to end at. So we kind of started with an ending, which will be revealed if we can get to the ending at some point. But we kind of had an idea of where it was going, and we started just designing characters and said, "Well, who are these? Who are these creatures?" And we designed like 30 characters. Like I think it was like 16 villains, and, like 14 heroes. Like it was a toy set. Like when you when you were a kid and got the G1 He-Man's or the G1 Transformers, it was like here's the Autobots, here's the Decepticons, here's Skeletor, here's He-Man, and they're groups of people yep so i just spent a lot of time just designing characters and then we said cool i guess we need a story to go with the characters and we just started kind of like hacking away at kind of a general story and it was kind of like going backwards and forwards because we all have full-time jobs and everything else so at that point we started to see okay this is kind of the general arc that i've been working on now and i just started doing story pages and then we tried to say let's fit the pinups to that. And it's funny because we, we've had issue one review. People are like, well, why are there all these pinups? And well, part of it was just a labor issue that we created them and said, how can we use those to fill pages? And secondly, there's beats where issue four will have a kind of roll call of like, here's hero pinups. And if, when you see it all at once, it's going to be like this, this reads like a TV show. This reads like one of those old shows where it's like, look, here's all the heroes because watching those old shows and those old comics, you know, there was always kind of a look. Here's here's the team, and part of it was to introduce the toys. 
So then as we started to look more and more into it and talk to more and more people that we knew that were creatives, we started saying, huh, there's a lot more to do here and we can't, we can't possibly do all these stories ourselves. And, uh, you know, the Dennis and Jason started saying, what about this for this character? And what about that for that character? And, you know, again, going to, from a nuts and bolts standpoint, I'm like, well, I already have these pages drawn and I only have so much time. Let's get other artists. Let's get other writers. Uh, or you write it, you know, so we started bringing in other, writers and artists uh, to start fleshing out other parts of the world. Because again, you keep having ideas faster than I can make them. Um, and then with issue one, we, we have three other stories drawn by three different people and different writers to say, huh, here's little glimpses into these worlds. Again, going back to what you had mentioned initially with the old masters, uh, mini comics where it's like, here's a spotlight on trap jaw. Here's a spotlight on evil lens, you know, backstory, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and as we, we, we decided that that worked for us as a cool format uh, for issue one, and we said that's going to be our format going forward, that we'll have our primary story that I'm kind of truck, trucking along with, which is, you know, quote unquote, the current state of affairs. But it gave us the freedom to really go down as many rabbit holes uh, as we wanted to. Uh, and as we've worked with more and more people, um, you know, we keep hearing people, this is a really fun sandbox because it's magic, it's robots, it's kind of whatever we want to do, which if you go back to those older shows, um, especially He-Man, it was, hey, there's robots, hey, there's a samurai, hey, there's magic. Yeah. Um, that was a very free genre to play in um, that Mattel had created for that world um, that to me was no different than a Western to say, like, look, there's cowboys, there's Indians, there's locomotives, there's, you know, the saloon. We're saying, hey, we can have robots, magic, the, you know, uh, the big castle, all these archetypes, the kingdom. There's a king and a queen, uh, and their guys have spears and jet planes. It, it, it makes no sense except in the constraints of uh, the genre, kind of like a musical where, like, no one sings their thoughts with a big dance number unless you're in a musical. And in that world, it makes sense. It makes no sense anywhere else. Just like, you know, how can 12 guys take over the world because they have, like, a chainsaw? It's yeah, stupid. Yeah. It's stupid unless you're in this genre. Um, I remember years ago I was uh, oh it was the Miracle Man comics by um, Alan Moore, mm -hmm. and in a later period I believe Neil Gaiman was writing them by then. There were kids waiting to get bit by a radioactive spider or something, and somebody goes, "You'll die if that happens." And he goes, "No, my dad's a statistician. He's told me now that there are real superheroes." the odds of getting superpowers from being, being bit by a radioactive spider have gone up exponentially. So because go. the rules of the world accept it, now it is doable. A man with a chainsaw can conquer a planet. Why and, not? Yeah, you can well, use a shrink ray for, for humanitarian means. Well, and then another thing with Lords that came up is I do comic conventions about 12 times a year. And, mm -hmm. and one of the fun things I like to do is network and meet other talented people. And I always, I always try to find ways to include them to use their superpowers to make my, you know, property better. Yeah. And I met a, a guy called uh, Eric Adie at Wizard World Philadelphia in 2014. And Eric is a guy that lives outside of Philadelphia, and he makes little handmade sculptures. And they're really, really cool. Um, he uses clay, wood, metal, parts, whatever. Kept his card. And when we started making issue one, I was like, hey, could you make a, a, a action figure of Umex, the main uh, the villain, the Megatron, the Skeletor, the Doctor? Uh, you know, sure. And then uh, he he built a, an amazing 12 uh, inch high, one of a kind sculpt. I sent it to my friend Keith Crick, who's a professional uh, 
fashion photographer in New York City. He shot the product. And then uh, another buddy that uh, I see at conventions, Jared Brown, took the photographs, photoshopped it together as though it was a real action figure in a plastic blister pack and designed 80s-style toy packaging, right? So when you read the PDFs of the book, the last two pages, the, the front and back of an action figure box, we've actually had people that are like, was this a real toy? Is this a real series? Did I miss this? And again, kind of feeding into that toy 80s, you know, basically we've tried to present it as though that like when you're getting these books, you're getting stuff from like 1983, 84. That it's like, huh, there's even like a little power trial, like strength, intelligence. Like, because I, I, I love that stuff as a kid. You know, well, how powerful is Starscream's attack? How smart is he? And again, to really immerse, you know, our readers and our fans into this world of like, this is. We're going to take you right back to that, and we're going to give you a good spin. And, uh, you know, again, that was another thing that we've had a lot of fun with playing around with. And right now Eric's building a new custom sculpt for one of the heroes for issue three. So we're, we're busy working on that as we speak. Yeah, that's pretty cool. You know, um, I think when you and I first talked, you told mm-hmm. me that your comic was a little bit like Masters of the Universe. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you know, you drew some parallels between your uh, Lords of the Cosmos and other things. And then when I read it is really when I started to think about the mini comics because you do approach it in a, I don't know if short bites is the right way to say what I'm trying to get at, but that's, yeah, I mean, it definitely got that, like, this handful of pages, one story, here's all the info you need for that. Some of this will carry over to the next thing, some of it won't, some of this you'll need to know about, some of it you may not, we'll see what happens in the future, you know. Sure. Yeah, it's very fair, because if you look at issue two, one of the characters that we had a lot of fun with in our design phase was Decaptor, and we all like Triclops. We thought that he was a cool get as a toy as a kid, and mm-hmm. I think it was a really cool design. So we started saying, okay, well, how can we have a character like Triclops without being Triclops? You know, he's an archetype. And uh, we came up with Decaptor, which is, of course, a stupid pun name, um, and we're like, cool, he'll he'll have heads in his belt, and he'll switch his heads out, right? He is a monster, you know, Oh, again, kind of like Manny faces a little bit too from He-Man, Triclops, like where he switches out what's going on. Okay, they're like, yeah, uh, yeah. like they're, they're like sockets. And, uh, you know, Dennis, you know, one of the one of the creators of the, the whole property said, I got a hell of a great idea for this. This almost Tales from the Crypt like story for this guy. Really? OK, cool. And he's like, what if he's like harvesting heads and and these heads don't know what's going on? And, uh, you know, he really had this really uh, straight vision for that story. Um, great run with it. And my friend, you know, Joe Freistuller, who's from Cleveland, uh, that I'd worked on some of my other projects before, uh, you know, drew it in his very, you know, horror, horror 1970, 60 style. And it's great. Um, it really doesn't have a whole lot to do with, like, the big ongoing mythology, but we thought it was a really cool like, here's this character that we see here and there in the books. We, he gets a, like, here's the new character, and then he, he kills a bunch of people in issue two in the main story. You just kind of see him, and it's kind of like, oh, look at him. But I thought Dennis's take on that was great, and because there's no format to those little stories, he, he basically did it as a straight-up EC horror story. On the flip side, uh, you know, the, the uh, you know, Night's Out story in issue two is more of a mythology builder of like, well, what's going on with Umex? And it actually shows the, the Lords of the Cosmos very first meeting at the end of the issue, which, you know, if you're paying attention, like there's this huge block of time that we haven't even addressed yet because the Lords of the Cosmos are kind of on the outs when the whole thing starts and they're basically gone and they haven't shown up in the current time for two full issues. 
and that'll change in issue three where they they kind of get reintroduced to the world so you see their very first appearance where an older super team gets wiped out and the only survivor runs into these two guys that are like greek gods that are just kind of roaming the the deserts so that's more of a that's an important mythology story to a bigger to a bigger plot point versus just hey here's a really cool character and here's kind of a an odd take um again it's the beauty of short stories uh that you can kind of take them in different formats and, and again it lets you use different writers and different artists to to flesh out really um what some of the guys that have worked on the book have called uh, just a, a crazy sandbox of bizarre characters that's fun to play with you know mm-hmm. well so let's talk about your uh well let's talk about the world a little bit that these characters exist in if mm-hmm. if you had to explain where these people lived and where all this action is taking place how, how would you explain that to us uh to me it's a, it's a cross between mongo from flash gordon okay. and uh eternia from he-man where there's there's some kind of central government that's run by a, a monarchy uh and there are different kingdoms and different races and different powers kind of all operating together uh there is a overwhelming group of terrorists which is the disciples of umex that's been around for a very long time and then there's kind of a Justice League type hero group that is the Lords of the Cosmos that's been around that kind of is operates above the government. Uh, at the same time, there's another factor that we kind of touch on in issue one, and we're going to go back there in issue three, where there's this, a gigantic machine that's basically all over the world that no one really quite understands. And people start to question, like, who put it there? Why is it there? Um, the government runs it, but they didn't build it. And it's just been there. Uh, and we kind of touch on that in issue one where a, a character is chasing one of the villains as an origin story and runs into a gigantic eye and then gets killed. And then we kind of cut it there. So there's kind of an X-Files type angle to like what what is going on here and, and why is this huge machine here? Uh, in, 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 and that's in addition to the, you know, good guy, bad guy, you know, dynamic, you know, Justice League, Legion of Doom. And then kind of the world government of, you know, there's bug creatures, there's people on dinosaurs, there's, you know, underwater, there's a whole underwater kingdom conflict. So, again, if you go back to those classics with Flash Gordon and, and He-Man, it was like there's bug people, there's shark people, there's all these people and in, in, in races and kingdoms and stuff going on in this inter, inter, interconnected world politics with the backdrop of a worldwide machine that no one knows who put it there or why, but it runs resources, fuel and economy Plus, there's this ongoing super-powered conflict of heroes and villains that's kind of been going on for quite some time. Okay, and so tell us a little bit. Um, you've got your uh, Lord Umex character there, I believe mm-hmm. was, was yes. his name. Give us a little yep. bit of his backstory. What's what's he got going on? Well, you know, we, we've actually talked about uh, what his origin is, mm-hmm. and uh, we had long talks about that and trying to flesh out what exactly it was. And <clears throat> we, we kind of... We, we went back to Star Wars, and we always felt that Darth Vader was great when he was in killing middle management in Empire Strikes Back, and he was very vague, mm-hmm. uh, and we liked that. Uh, when we had to dissect everything about his childhood and learn every single thing about him, uh, we felt that his character really got lame. Um, that was just our uh, opinion, and we had a couple uh, ideas for what his origin was, and everyone we had we felt it wasn't good enough. It wasn't good enough. It wasn't good enough. So one of the things that we've talked about doing is an origin issue where a bunch of characters in prison would each give one of these things that we didn't like. Their pitch is to say this is the origin. 
and then everyone keeps telling a different story. Like, well, no, 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 no. This is like the, the Joker in a way, where you got a multiple choice past. Could be this, yeah. could be that. Yeah, and, and uh, our, our final decision, uh, is, I, I think, was that we don't want to tell anyone his origin because we kind of felt that if, he went, if he's going to be this uber villain, that no matter what we made up, it would just kind of fall short. Did he come from Earth? You know, is he, you know, this eternal creature? You know, is he a fallen angel? Who knows? Like, we had just a bunch of ideas, and uh, we we were really leaning towards that there there will be no real origin because we felt that was better than anything we could come up with and, and, and to have different ones. And, and your point, kind of the joke where it's like, even the, the characters around him have no idea what's going on that. Well, I heard he was, you know, two guys that were merged together. I heard he was from a time traveler. Who knows? Uh, so yes, uh, he, his origin is most likely going to be that there is no origin. And, uh, I kind of envision an outer limits, uh, style science fiction stories of people in some kind of prison, sharing their stories and having different artists draw the different versions of those background stories that are being passed around as rumors to men before they go to the electric chair, so to speak. All right. Well, tell us a little bit about his team then, about his uh, his Legion of Doom, so to speak. Who, who are some of the guys? Who are some of his lieutenants? And why would they hang around with somebody they don't understand where he came from or where he is going? That's a great question. So in his hierarchy, uh, there are two, uh, his two top people. Uh, one is his femme fatale, uh, who's Lady Obsidia, uh, that is basically a crazy person uh, that just thinks he's he's awesome. And uh, her origin is detailed in issue two, where she is a in, a in a group called the Rainbow Knights, which we kind of based loosely on kind of a girl's line of toys like She-Ra, and uh, that she leaves the group. And we don't show it, but just comes back in love with him, that, that he's he's the truth. And uh, we kind of modeled that character after what we had seen in documentaries about people that leave and go to cults, and they come back, and they're like, you don't understand the truth, da 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 um, We really looked a lot at the, uh, and I forget their name, but they were the people that killed themselves, the Hailbot people. Oh, yeah, uh, uh, Heaven's Gates. Where, right, where it was like, hey, I'm a normal guy, I run into these people, and all of a sudden I give up all my money and possessions, and I go to kill myself to go in a comet. But I think it's the greatest idea, and if you don't understand it, uh, Jeremy, you're stupid. Yeah. Right? Uh, kind of like that, where, where – so she's basically a sociopath that is just – she's seen the truth. She's going to smile at you and tell you that she's going to help you and then cut your throat. Yeah. Okay. So she's like his, his top person, and she's just blindly loyal and in love with him uh, and wants to do anything she can to let everyone be purified to his truth. So she's just a fanatic. Uh, and then his other second in command type is a uh, cybernetic unicorn that when Dennis wrote that character, he, he, he always wants to give him the Starscream voice, the sniveling, complaining, uh, wants to be in charge but isn't quite there. And he's just a gigantic, rotting, uh, zombie, mechanical uh, unicorn slash pegasus that can fly on bat wings. And they're his top two. And his origin we did in issue one, where he kind of comes from a, a fantasy elves and sprites and talking tree type place. And he's obsessed with power and he turns on everyone and goes to Umex and becomes transformed and just comes back and destroys everything. And now is the only living uh, fantasy creature because he's killed them all. So they're his top two people. The rest of his characters are more of the soldiers. Uh, there's a character that doesn't talk, that has a chainsaw for an arm. There's a robotic crab. 
Uh, and then, uh, boy, uh, he has a, 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 a guy that just breathes poison gas called Belchor. There's a, a large uh, centipede-like insect. Uh, there's a small dwarven character that builds machines for him, uh, all the way up to each the good guys and the bad guys. We wanted to give them different size characters because we were thinking like toys, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so the bad guys have two larger characters and then one super large character. So one of the large characters that we actually had built as a toy for a background Kickstarter is like a gigantic fishbowl with a cybernetic slash human body in the front called Mordanix, and he uh, uses people as fuel with huge mechanical arms where he picks them up and dissolves them in his acid vat, acid vat tank. And again, I envisioned as a toy that he would have water in it that you put food coloring in and you could drop your action figures in the back. So he's like the next step up toy. And then there's another larger character uh, that is uh, has two heads and, and artillery on his back and machine guns for arms. And again, we envisioned those as the like $30 toys at the store when you were a kid versus uh, the $10 toys. And then each side also has a, a kaiju super character. And so Umex has a large cybernetic uh, dragon called Ragewing that, again, he would be the $100 toy, kind of like the aircraft carrier from G.I. Joe, that he's the, the super big character. Um, and then the good guys have a gigantic tortoise that has guns coming out of a shell like a battleship. And then one of the things we're going to see in issue three is those two gigantic characters fighting in one of the backup stories. It's kind of like a Godzilla versus King uh, King Ghidorah type battle because uh, I also thought big you know, kaiju monsters were cool. And again, because Lords of the Cosmos doesn't really have many rules, we can say that you have a gigantic dragon that works for you. And these guys have a gigantic turtle that works for you. And they fight occasionally and destroy cities as these guys fall into their endless wars for territory and control. I, I like the way you think on that. I, I never thought about throwing kaiju into, into He-Man. That would be pretty awesome. I mean, you know, again, when you look at all those properties, part of it, the, the beauty of it is, for example, let's say that you were going to say, I'm going to do a modern, current 2019 modern anti-terrorist war comic, right? Mm-hmm. Readers are going to pick you apart. That's not the right gun, okay? That's not the right goggle. That's not the right plane. And and fans are smart. They're going to pick up on all that, oh, yeah. right? I, I drew a, for a project for my friend David, who worked on Lords of the Cosmos, I did some uh, art for him. It was some Cthulhu art based uh, in the 40s, and uh, I'd put some some military stuff in it. And, man, people were not quite right, not quite right. People were picking it apart. And I actually had to go back and fix things to placate that retro military crowd because this isn't right, wrong part of the world, wrong weapons. And, uh, man, like people will kill you on that stuff every day of the week. And uh, but again, you go to kind of this weird science fiction barbarian thing. Hey, they got a kaiju. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> you know, and, and no one can say, well, that's really not the that's not the kaiju they would have used in that war. They, they would have had a gigantic, uh, you know, this and that. Well, no, whatever. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, again, the the rogues gallery, we looked at it as toys like everyone would want to get Umex. Right. And then Aegis is kind of the He-Man good guy character that shows up in issue three. <clears throat> and then there's kind of the regular, you know, the regular action figure size dudes. And then there's two next step up larger characters. And the good guys have a, like a, a part man, part tank and a gigantic polar bear. Uh, and like I said, the bad guys have their gigantic two headed artillery man. And then this walking fish tank that's acid. And then each side has a gigantic character. And again, it would all match up as though you were going to the toy store. You'd say, well, you know. 
Each side has ten regular size figures, two larger ones, and one extra large, and a you know base set or whatever. So yeah. Um, okay, so why don't you tell us a little bit about the hero characters? You already brought one up by name. Um, see, I always find the villains more interesting. That's why I want to know about them first. Sure. So the heroes are the Lords of the Cosmos, and their origin is detailed up in issue two, where as the Rainbow Knights are slaughtered down except to one person, uh, there's two Greek god types, which we're going to explore their their Greek god origins in issue four, most likely, where the they run into this uh, goddess-like female character that survives this carnage in, in this backstory called Knights Out. <clears throat> and where we detail them up is they're basically the big three, kind of like Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman, where you have Aegis, mm-hmm. Myrmidon, who's a guy with a big trident, and then uh, Lady Prism, who shoots rainbows out of a big rainbow staff. And they are the three like super-powered leaders of this uh, good guy group, Lords of the Cosmos. And when issue two starts in the main story, they talk about there was this big conflict where you know we thought Umex had died. So that's well after the fact. And then showing these three characters meet is the beginning of this huge war. Uh, that we're going to show little snapshots of in issue three as uh, backstory stuff. But so they have they meet and they begin a worldwide conflict against Umex to stop him. And one of the things we've talked about is, well, maybe then they each had hundreds of characters that all get wiped out in this war. Uh, we'll call it the first cosmic war. So you have these three main superpowered heroes. And one of the things that we even mention in issue two and like the little like go see the fall of Myrmidon issue two is that Umex has gotten the drop on one of these guys near the end and kills basically Aegis's best friend Myrmidon. Right. And then as, and this is a big theme in issue three is that the Lords of the cosmos maybe won this war and drove Umex away to the point they think he's dead, but most of their men get killed. One of the top three guys gets wiped out. They have a shrine to him in their headquarters that we see in issue three and basically the main good guy, Aegis, that's the, the, the basically the leader of the Lords of the Cosmos, he's basically quit and gone away. And the reason these bad guys have come back out is they've been healing and growing. And the good guys are kind of here and there. We In issue two, like one of them is a, a gigantic eagle that sees what's going on because Umex, his power is that he can infect the planet with his tentacles. And he sees this, but he's just kind of roaming around free. And then part of issue three will be how they run into other Lords of the Cosmos that are like, yeah, I used to be on the team, but the army's basically disbanded and the, the leader basically doesn't want to fight anymore. And then issue three will be what motivation can we give this guy to basically come out of retirement and say enough's enough. I got to go back and fight this guy. But we, but also it examines the theme of when these people would have these conflicts, how would he man feel if man at arms got his head cut off? Right. How would he feel if Ram man got burned alive? Yeah. Right. Um, these things were never really explored on any of those shows. It was like, well, you know, the bad guys will have some fisticuffs, you know, beast man will trip and fall over and Skeletor will shake his fist. Uh, you know, if you actually talk to people that are actually in wars, it's horrible. People get killed. People get hurt. People do horrible things. They're not eager to go back and fight. So the idea is that there was this huge war and that Aegis has seen horrible things. His best friend uh, basically gets incinerated by Umex and then they think they've killed Umex, but he's still there. So the idea for him to go back and fight these guys again is incredibly unappealing, and he's basically just hiding. He's he's on a mountain fortress with a few of his guys basically just saying, I don't want anything to do anymore. 
And then one of the other things we'll bring up in issue three is that he has this super powerful sword that's intelligent that is basically his super powered weapon that he uses that he's locked it up a mile underground. He doesn't even want to have it anymore. And the sword is angry because uh, the sword uh, wants to kill people because it's a very angry, intelligent sword. And one of the backup stories in issue three will be the origin of his, his amazing sword and the sword complaining how it's been locked up uh, after his friend got killed. Because in the sword's opinion, he should have gone on a huge killing spree and he got locked in a closet and he's pissed off. And he's just sitting in a closet forever with chains on him. Got you've done a lot of background work for this story. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, no. And, and uh, you know, it's funny you say that because we have a lot of stuff fleshed out. Um, and then we have some characters that they're kind of like background filler, kind of our red shirt, so to speak, that, mm-hmm. that we haven't really delved a whole lot into. Uh, I'll give you another preview that we're working on now. So one of our characters that when we did this initial run of who are characters, one of the good guys was an intelligent plant that was like super friendly. And around that time, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy 1 came out and uh, Groot obviously was a, the superstar of that film, at least in my humble opinion. And the writers had basically described Groot. And I called them and I was like, wow, I was like, uh, you know, this what you guys described on paper was Groot. I'm like, we really can't do that. And they said, yeah, that's an unfortunate coincidence. We should scrap that. And I said, well, hold on a minute. I think, you know, the, the, the bad guys are, a lot of them are these kind of like mechanical, undead, very unpleasant characters. I think a plant is a universal sign of life and it's very pleasant. It fits. Let me see what I can come up with. It's different. Right. So I thought about it and thought about it and thought about it. And then I drew a, uh, an orchid and I put it inside a, like a snow globe with like uh, legs like a spider, like mechanical legs and then kind of like a, a claw and a gun on like robot appendages and then i drew roots running like little joysticks inside the the uh the snow globe okay and then uh dennis said his name's orca memnon and i love it it's great it's different it's not groot we love it so again moving into issue three we really wanted to bring this character uh into a more of a spotlight form so he'll be in the main story but then dennis said i had this vision for his 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 story and i said what's the vision Man, he's 200,000 years old. He he was from this prior era before there was people on the planet, and he has this huge plant adventure, but everyone dies, and he saves himself in this mechanical machine, and he's kind of been living like diary, you know, interview with a vampire on the planet of, of Aiden, and, he, you know, he sees this new co- – I'm like, man, I'm like – it was like a Rorschach test. I just drew something to try to not make Groot, and, and Dennis had this great vision – and that will be an issue three. There's a handful of characters like that that we have nothing on, but the, the cool thing is when you give writers and artists freedom to help you, they're going to give you great ideas, and they're going to see a character and say, man, you you drew this guy. What if he, you know, what do you mean what if? Like, where are we going with this? And people have great ideas, and when you give them, you know, kind of blank things to fill in and you empower them to help you out, They'll come up with great ideas as far as I'm concerned. And again, the the wide open world of Lords of the Cosmos has a lot of unexplored territory. Um, you know, someone came to us and said, geez, I, I really want to have some robotic cowboys in Lords of the Cosmos that fight, uh, you know, snakes. Sure, we could shoehorn it in somehow and probably make it make some semblance of sense because we don't have any rules. 
so I got to ask, how did you get into, I mean, what were, when you were growing up, obviously He-Man, G.I. Joe, cartoon lines, toy lines were things you were inspired by. What were some of the things that got you into the idea of like trying to make comics and come up with these things? What were, what were fandoms that you belonged to that pointed you in that direction? Fandoms that I belong to, um, huge, huge into anime and manga. Okay. Um, I've been in that since the late 80s, and I have a ridiculous amount of Blu-rays and DVDs and <clears throat> big, thick collections. Huge fan of that genre. Uh, and one of the things I like about Japanese uh, comics and cartoons versus U.S. comics and cartoons is there's a lot more freedom to gender bend and to do different stuff. U.S. comics obviously have been dominated by superheroes and I, I like superhero comics and I have a ton of them, but Japanese uh, creativity to me is much more diverse and creative and it lets your brain go in different directions. So that's a fandom that uh, I've, I've always uh, really, really, really been into. Uh, and uh, boy, what else? Um, I like movie series. I like like Mad Max. I like the, the series of four films. Um, uh, man, boy, I tell you, I feel a little bit put on the spot. And I, and I like dystopian literature, mm -hmm. uh, Orwell, uh, Huxley, and things like that. Um, those are the things that I really, really, really like and consider myself a fan of. Um, and as far as what got me to make a comic book, um, two steps. Uh, in 1992, when I was in high school, a guy that owned a comic book store said, hey, we're going to publish a comic here at the store. I'd like you to make a comic, and I made a an eight-page comic called Captain Anarchy with some ballpoint pens, and it never saw the light of day because the guy never made the book. And that was in an era when uh, the technology to do small press runs of books and Kickstarter and all that stuff didn't exist. So small independent books, at least in my estimation at that time, didn't really exist outside of people Xeroxing things. And I did that, and I never really did anything with a comic book for a while. And then – Around 2010, uh, I was pretty active on the Heavy Metal Magazine message board. Pre-social media, they had they had a message board on their website. And there was a handful of us that pretty much uh, were really not into the direction that Kevin Eastman was going at the time. And we, we pretty much goofed on a lot of the stuff they were doing. Yeah. And then <clears throat> Heavy Metal Magazine made an announcement and said, hey, we're going to shut down our message board and basically go to social media. That's the new shiny, shiny uh, whistle that we see. And uh, a lot of us were saying, well, you know, we should uh, try to submit a, uh, a story to Heavy Metal together. And I, and I was drawn at the time, uh, and I was like, hey, you know what, yeah, it'd be cool to do a short story. So a lot of us were saying, since this format's going to go away, let's get together. So there was three of us that uh, there was a, a guy that said he was a writer and a guy that said he was a letterer. And myself, and I said, well, I'll draw a story, you letter, and you write it. And uh, I was like, I have a real simple idea for a story. Uh, and I kind of pitched this real simple five-page idea to this writer. And I said, could you write a script that I could draw for this? <clears throat> and basically the general gist of it was is there was a bunch of guys that uh, <clears throat> had uh, hazmat suits on and were chasing a dangerous life form. And they chase it down, and they kill it, but it's a human. And then you realize the guys in hazmat suits are really weird aliens. Very, very basic, very, very twilight zone. Yeah. Yeah. Real basic. And this guy takes three months and sends me like a 20 page script that was just bizarre. And I was like, dude, I'm no writer, but this doesn't even, this is weird. I was like, it's just, and, and the guy cursed me out. F you, you know, you're an idiot. Don't steal my ideas. You're jealous. 
and I never talked to that guy again. But the guy that was the letterer uh, was like, hey, I, you know what? That guy is weird, but I could probably write that script. So he wrote the script, and I drew it, and we colored it and lettered it. And uh, I sent it to Heavy Metal Magazine, and I was like, wow, it'll be in print. And I dropped Heavy Metal a note, and I was like, so, you know, is this good enough? Is it Does it meet your criteria? Blah, blah, blah. And they were like, yeah, it, it might take us 10 years to decide if we'll use it. That's the current waiting list to get in our, our book. And I was like, ooh, wow, geez, that's, uh, that's kind of like saying never. Uh, mm. I hope I live another 10 years. And uh, that was in 2011. And then uh, I, I talked to, to my friend David, the guy that had written that story and lettered it. And I said, well, why don't we make a, another short story? So we made another short story that was like a, a, like a dark fantasy thing about a, a cat that turned into a demon. And uh, we just we submitted that. And then it was the same thing, you know, 10 year, 10 year. And uh, I, I said to my friend David, I said, well, you know, we could either wait 10 years, which we'll never hear from these guys, or we could try to just print it ourselves and sell it. And uh, we went to Kickstarter in 2011 and raised like a thousand bucks and made uh, a book called Ugly Studios, Studios Presents Number One. And uh, I made a book. And then I started doing shows in 2012 just to get out and say, I have a book, buy my book. And I had a lot of fun doing that. And then uh, since then, I've made. Uh, <sighs> five more comic books and then three art books um, where I self-published nine books since then. But I just had a lot of fun making it and I try to do about one a year and then, you know, Lords of the Cosmos 3, the, the goal will be to get that on Kickstarter, you know, this year and get that out towards the end of the year. So yeah, there's my how I made comics kind of saga. You know, I did one, you know, a long, long time ago when I was a teenager and didn't go anywhere. And then, like I said, just kind of making fun of heavy metal magazine in the direction it was going around that time and kind of linking up with some guys. And one guy told me to go F myself, but you know, I met one guy that was a, a, a good guy and he since has gotten out of doing it and uh, he's doing his own thing now, but that's cool. But then through that, you kind of, you kind of launch yourself into the, uh, <clears throat> into the rabbit hole and you meet more people and, and yeah, so there, there's, there, there's the answer. Oh yeah. Um, you know, a couple of years ago I was talking to a guy who had, just started publishing through Caliber Comics, and I had an idea for a, a superhero slash slasher movie crossover comic book idea, right? Mm -hmm. I said, hey, you got to, you know, I, I'm not a writer. Like, I could, I can plot a story, but I'm not going to sit down and write it. You know, it's just, I'm never going to be that guy. Yeah. So, hey, you got a writer. Oh, yeah, yeah, I got this guy. So, me and him got together, told him, you know, came up with a number that I'd pay him to write it in a time frame. And the day before I was going to send him his first payment, he goes, um, by the way, your story sucks. Uh, it's a shitty idea, and here's how I'd like to do it. And I said, um, you know what, uh, hearing, <coughs> hearing that, um, no. And thank you anyways. And he goes, oh, no, I'm still willing to do it your way. And I'm thinking of all the sentences that could come out of your mouth next. I'm still willing to do it your way was the wrong goddamn one. You know, uh, I'm hiring you. I'm asking for commerce, not art, buddy. And, uh, you know, no, no offense. I get it. Writers are artists and they want to do the stuff they want to get into. It's just, you want to talk about the wrong fucking sentence to follow up with. And he, I mean, he nailed it right on the nose, <laughs> you know? So, well, uh, I have certainly seen uh part of that creative collaboration come tumbling down on you. 
Well, and, and here's the thing, is that if you think about an older world with comics uh, and media, there was very few outlets. It was like, here's Marvel, here's mm-hmm. DC, you know, uh, that's it. And, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, whereas now it's reverse. It's, it's pure democracy. If you, if you have an idea and you want to make a book and you can scratch together a couple bucks, you could print a book and sell it. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so, you know, well, go ahead. I was going to say art wise, even, you know, I mean, I, I grew up in the eighties and, you know, got into my twenties and the mid nineties. Mm-hmm. Your artwork reminded me of indie comics from that time period. For sure. Um, yeah, I mean, it definitely had a feel and a style. And you know, you brought up Kevin Eastman earlier. I actually, I've interviewed Kevin Eastman, uh, so I was I was a major Mutant Ninja Turtle fan back during its initial black and white run when I was in like sixth and seventh grade. Yeah, great um, and, and great book. Yeah, and it it kind of your your Lords of the Cosmos has a lot in so Mutant Ninja Turtles was definitely more tongue in cheek. But mm-hmm. your book definitely has um, a feel or a style that is also similar to the old Mutant Ninja Turtles. That's a huge compliment. I appreciate that. Yeah, so uh, there were definitely um, things from my, my childhood and teen years and early 20s when I was still into comics that definitely I, I caught the feeling of and the style of and whatever. Um, Jason, we are starting to run low on time here. If people sure. want to check out some of your work, where can they go? Let me do the rundown for you. Absolutely. My God, it seems like every year there's a new platform. So uh, JasonLennox.com is my main website, and that's kind of a gigantic uh, archive of work that I do. Uh, If you want to follow me on social media, uh, Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Lennox Artist. And then on Facebook, I'm Jason Lennox Illustrator on Facebook. Uh, If you want to buy stuff from me, okay, uh, if you want to buy Lords of the Cosmos digitally, you can go to Comixology and you can pick a copy up there digitally. Um, if you'd like to get Lords of the Cosmos as a physical uh, book and have me sign it, and, and if you want to buy prints and other artwork from me, uh, Etsy, you can go to Lennox Art Emporium uh, on Etsy. It's an easy place to find me. So pretty much that's that's the, the main places to catch me. Awesome. Um, so you got book number three. I, are you doing about one book a year with Lords of the Cosmos? Is that kind of your thing? Yeah, and, and as we had talked, you know, prior, you know, our pre-interview interview. Um, obviously, you know, we have full-time jobs, so mm-hmm. uh, getting and I have two small kids and all that exciting stuff. So getting one full quality book out a year, uh, to me, that's a good standard because you know, with any book, there's all the work to make the book. And then in, in a world of crowdfunding, uh, that's like running for political office every year doing that, which uh, I'm not saying that to complain. I, I actually enjoy doing it, but it is a lot of work. And I take it seriously that when I get a book done on Kickstarter, I want to get it out to the fans in a pretty prompt fashion uh, because they're giving me money and they deserve product. So, yeah, so that's my goal is to get you know, Lords of the Cosmos uh, 3 out uh, the, probably by the end of the year, realistically. Yeah, that's um, one of the things I have noticed. You know, first couple of years that I was doing Geekish Cast, I was mm-hmm. doing comic conventions as many as I could fit in, this that, and the other. I'm actually not going to be doing that anymore, just because it became mm-hmm. it became a full time job just staying in touch with convention people. I mean, literally, you know, mm-hmm. just figuring out when this show is going to happen. Not only that, I don't know about where you're at. I started mm-hmm. to run into the diminishing returns after about five conventions. 
same. You mean doing the same, doing the same one for five years? No, uh, doing five conventions back to back, geographically close together, mm-hmm. all the same people. Which I didn't mind running into them. It was just the capacity for increasing an audience or meeting new people evaporated yeah. in twelve months. You know, I'll give you my take on it because I've sure. been doing shows since twenty twelve. Is that shows are very fragile. Mm-hmm. Um, promoters can quit, they can change, they can go away. Um, it's a very unstable world. Now, there's a lot of stuff in it, but it's very unstable. Uh, secondly, part of the trick of succeeding in having a good convention uh, life for yourself is picking what I'll call good fits. And I'll give you an example. Like, we have a show that's a half an hour from my house in a little town called Altoona that's been going on for nine years, I think, something like that, maybe eight. And uh, it's at a wonderful uh, facility, uh, and the promoter promotes it all year round. And every year that I go, I have a great time, and I make a good buck. I would always do that show. Now, to tell you to come in from California to do that show would, would be asinine. Mm-hmm. For you, for you, it's not a good fit. For me, it is a good fit. Um so what I found is that from doing shows, you, you kind of whittle it down to the ones that you have fun at, you make money at. Um, it's not the re, you know not a repeat fan base, um, and it's worth your time to go. Um, people just throw shows in my face all the time. Hey, Jason, here's a five hour show that's six hours away for you. Come on down. And I'm like, no. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So I've tried to put it, whittle it down to like these are the shows that work for me. They may not be the shows that would work for another artist because there's the, like there's a show in Philadelphia called Retrocon, and by all accounts it's an amazing show. Um, I've asked friends that go as fans. I'm like, should I go as a vendor artist? And they're like, absolutely not. It's so not your your scene. It's it's people that are there to look at like old video games and toys. Your your unique brand of art would be a total fail. So I don't do Retrocon, which isn't to say that maybe you know a guy that lives near that wants to go look at old video games, yeah. he could have a great time. So like you got to even look at that where it's like, is this even the right show for you? Um, so to the diminishing returns uh, comment, to me, part of that is picking the right shows, and that when you when you're at a show, hopefully, and in my case, it's like, what do you have that's new, and you kind of have a, a good regular repeat. Uh, crowd that wants to see you and you haven't seen them that much that it's exciting, not like, oh, I just saw you. Yeah, that was one of the things I've noticed here is that there's a handful of guys that live between, you know, Southern California and, say, the East Bay where there's a lot of video games and stuff made. Mm-hmm. And you see some of these guys that are, look, and they got cool jobs, you know, voice acting or maybe did some, you know, video game video work. Cool stuff. They've been in awesome shit that you want to see. I've seen you five conventions in a row in six months. Well, and part of it's it's yeah. just I mean, look, dude, everyone's a little bit lazy, and like oh, everybody's there's a, very lazy. <laughs> and and there's 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 a little bit of geographic bias for like, you know, and I'll throw this out as an example because it makes sense. Tim Truman is a is a first class artist, and he's a wonderful human being, and he he lives in Lancaster, right, mm-hmm. which is which is southeast of me, and I grew up there. <laughs> you know, Tim lives in Lancaster. And if you live in South Central Pennsylvania, seeing Tim Truman is like it's kind of common because Tim lives there. And if there's a show in that area, there's a pretty good chance you're going to see Tim. And Tim's a hell of a nice guy. 
Um, he's done professional work forever. Um, and like I said, he's a really cool human being. And, uh, you know, Tim helped me get a pinup in Conan a couple years ago and he was working for Dark Horse, which was pretty dope. That's really but awesome, actually. But, you know, but to your point, here's the thing. Let's say you live in Lancaster and you work and you're going to those shows that are around there. It's like, well, there's Tim Truman again. Yeah. And again, just because you live there, it's like it's not as special. And you, it, it is an issue because it's like, so if you were at three shows and you kept seeing Tim, you might say, oh, I'm not going to talk to him because I just saw him. Like, yeah. it's, it's like having Christmas every month. So and, and no matter where you go, it's like th- there's going to be that. You know, here's the guys that live near you that do this stuff. And, and you do shows long enough to say, hey, there's this guy, there's that guy. And like I said, I know that in our area, seeing Tim Truman is again because Tim lives in the area. So why the hell wouldn't he do stuff near here? It makes sense. Like, why would Tim go to Oregon? Oh, yeah. And that's all I meant is that I'm not going to do it yeah. anymore because I hit that point. And look, I wasn't selling anything. I was doing it yeah. just to make contacts. And I liked having a table. Because then I got a place to go when I'm tired of hoofing it. You know, I got a place to go sure. sit down for a minute. Um, now, that being said, I got to meet Sam J. Jones, who played Flash Gordon. That was awesome. Nice. Um, nice. You know, I have I, made some great contacts and friends. You know, Dominic Davy, who's the basis and founder of Tsunami Bomb, is also a comic book creator and publisher. Been a great friend of mine for a couple years now and an awesome contact to have. It is something I've gained some something out of, but it's one that I'm just like, I'm I'm tired of doing it. Now, if I publish a comic or I write a book about podcasting or something, maybe I'll try it again when I have something to sell. Well, and I agree with that. And, and you know, again, to your point, like, you got to ask yourself, why are you there? Yep. And I, I would imagine for a podcaster, once you kind of hit that critical mass, a lot of it could go online. Yeah. Um, whereas with the kind of selling and stuff and, and having a book, I think it, it is a little more hands-on-ish, um, which isn't to say it isn't nice to get an Etsy sale or something like that or a Comixology sale, but uh, yeah, you, you would really have to question, is, is, is this now diminishing returns? Am I going out for no reason? Because actually you could just go to a show and walk around and have your cards and say, hey, you know, I'm Jeremy at GeekishCast. Um, I like your stuff. Call me. So you, you could actually get the same thing out of it and not even have to pay to be there except just your admission to go in. Right, exactly. And and honestly, with a small enough show, you could probably just get a press pass and do it. You know? Oh, for sure. So, you, yeah. so, I mean, to me, I love talking to guys doing podcasts and review shows. Like, to me, uh, you know, we, we exist in, in, a, in a symbiotic relationship because uh, creators are content for you. And on the same t- uh, hand, it helps, you know, a creator uh, – or actor or whatever, get their message out to a different audience that, that your people. So, you know, when I'm at shows and someone walks around, I was like, hey, man, I got, I'm got i always going to take their card to say, well, sure, yeah. do you want to interview me? Not? Because to me, that's a valuable thing. And like you said, you could press pass it and and go talk to, you know, hundreds of people and, and get the same effect. What what benefit would it really have for you to, to have a booth? Now you got to be there and you got to pay for the space. It's a pain in the ass. So, yeah, I think you'd be better served by just getting the press pass and just rolling around. Yeah, so that's that's what I have learned from it. Um, Jason, so what I'm thinking is in another six or eight months, I would like to have you come back on and talk specifically about doing publicity as a, uh independent creator. Yeah. Um, if you wouldn't mind doing so. We are, of course, uh, desperately out of time this week, kind of like the end of an old-school pro wrestling show. <laughs> yes. Well, what we'll do is uh, what we'll, we could tie it into uh, the next Kickstarter. 
which is always a great time to talk about PR and press and that whole thing. Mm-hmm. But we could definitely do that. About six months will probably be about the time we're doing it. Oh, cool. Well, let's um, let's reconnoiter in about that period of time. One more time, why don't you tell everybody where to look you up and check out your stuff online and buy your books and all that sort of thing. Let's do it. So website, jasonlenox.com. Uh, social media, Instagram and Twitter is at Lennox Artists. Facebook is Jason Lennox Illustrator. You can buy my comics digitally at Comixology, and you can get physical books at uh, my Etsy store as well as prints and art and T-shirts at Lennox Art Emporium on Etsy. There you go. That's, that's awesome. That was pretty pretty succinct and quick there. All right, everybody. Well, go check Jason's stuff out. It's a lot of fun stuff. If you grew up during the 80s or are appreciative of that time period or just like fun comics with cool character designs, I don't think you're going to go wrong with Lords of the Cosmos. Um, and thank you for listening. And so for Jason Lennox and for myself, Jeremy Vilmer, bye-bye, everybody. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.